We have with us in studio Dr Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy. You may remember at the very beginning of our election series, we had Peter in studio with us telling us about the whole process that CAPAD's involved with and what that might look like playing out over the election. So Peter's going to be chatting with us today, give us a bit of a refresher course on, on what they do and also to talk about the trends that he's noticing on their website. So welcome to the show, Peter. It's lovely to have hey, you back. No worries. Hey, Zena. Hey, Scotty. And hey, listeners. Wonderful. So, Peter, for those that didn't catch the first show with you, would you better give us a little bit of a sort of a crash course in the camera lines of participatory democracy? Yeah. So, um, and why we need you? <laughs> well, you need us because politics is broken, and we want to fix it. And we think that the best way of fixing it is um, by getting citizens more actively involved in the process of the politics and also getting good working relationships between the people we elect to represent us in the various parliaments and assemblies around Australia and we, the active citizen. And so um, we run a variety of programs, but at this point in the election cycle, what we're really interested in is getting people to think very carefully about who they're voting for, not just the party policies, which are very important, um, but within each party policy group, particularly the major parties, which of those candidates are more likely to be the sort of MLA who's going to work with us, the community, to deliver the Canberra we want to live in? So, um, buzz, you know, slogan, tagline, vote thoughtfully. And you really talk about seeing candidates as people, and that's something we've tried to stress with all of our guests over the last few weeks. And I'd say we've had about a 50% success rate in having them say that they filled out um, the statement, the CAPAD statement. So a couple of them said, yes, and I was the first one. And the the lady next to her said, I was the second one. So they were um, very, very pro that. There was also another organisation, I believe, out of the ANU that's doing something similar as well. Yes. So... um the Patrick Dumont and um, in the School of Political Science and the Crawford School mm-hmm. there run this thing called Smart Vote, mm-hmm. and that's based on some stuff that he pioneered in Switzerland about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what it it started off looking at political parties and their policies and matching political parties to voters' interests. And in this election, they've gone one better. They've actually interviewed some of the candidates who have put up statements and they have answered the 32-question questionnaire. This website now links the, the candidate state, statements about themselves and their party and their beliefs to your own personal attitudes, beliefs about mm. you know th- that set of issues that they <laughs> ask you in the 32. So we're getting into analytics here, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's some fascinating stuff. I... Um, I probably shouldn't tell you what my results were, but it was quite interesting um, when I when I looked to to see who I compared to mm-hmm. compared to who I thought I might compare to. Was there a big to. difference? There wasn't a huge difference, but um, it means that uh, when I go along to the polling booth in the sort of week before the seventeenth, and I do my um, my community vote on the on the new electronic community voting machines. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have a better idea about, you know, what order I should put the candidates on the ballot paper, mm-hmm. right to the, you know, 30-second in Kurrajong to make sure I don't waste my vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, that's brilliant. So <clears throat> with this process that you've seen candidates come and um, fill out statements, you've had feedback from the people interacting with your website, what is that trend that you see emerging? Like, wh- how, how have you made a difference here? 
Well, I don't know that I can claim, we can claim at any stage to have made a lot of difference, but there's been some interesting things happening. One is mm-hmm. I've um, just printed out this morning's um, web Yeah, I can see a very exciting-looking graph over there yeah, on the other this, side of the table. Yeah, so we've basically we've, we run along um, at a fairly low level of interest, but if you look through the three yeah, years we've been uh, running, there's been this sort of yeah. trend of, of gradually increasing, then every time we have an election there's a spike. A massive spike, yeah. And there was a weird set of spikes in there, which we have no <laughs> idea what that was. Um, but in the last sort of month and a half, six weeks, we've had a massive spike up. We're now running at four times the rate of visits and visitors that we normally run at. And we've actually exceeded the number of visits and visitors that we had for the 2016 ACT election, which is sort of the first election we ran this process in. So there's obviously a large number of people out there who are interested in what's on our website looking at what they're downloading, they're downloading candidate statements. Well, people um, people would like to do this and look at all the policies of the parties, and that's a pretty big job, and then adding in how the candidates are going to relate to <laughs> to each of the policies and what they're good at and all of that. That's a huge amount of research. So, Yes. Is that partly what you're trying to help people with? What? Yes. So... Um, We've rejigged our website since we spoke last, and we've now brought the candidate statements much um, further to the front of the election page, and you can now go to our election page, and for each electorate, um, you can open that electorate tab, and then there are, by question, a list of all the candidates by each of the questions we ask them and what their responses are. So you can just scroll down and compare you know, all the candidates on, you know, how they're going to to get citizens to participate with them in government, um, how all the candidates are going to improve democracy, how all the candidates are going to represent us, how all the candidates reckon, or why all, they all reckon they're, they're going to be good for the job. Mm-hmm. And so it's there, one page, one scan, quick, mm-hmm. so that makes it easier. But the other fascinating thing is there's also this Vote Easy mob that have um, appeared on the scene this election, and they... Um, also seek to give candidates a platform that the candidate can tell you about themselves as people and why you should be voting for them. Mm. And so, in fact, we've gone from, in the last ACT election, just the Canberra Alliance doing this, and Smart Vote did it back then too in a slightly different way, to now having, um, well, and additionally, the Electoral Commission... Uh, Carolyn Lacuta, before she left Parliament, got an amendment to the Electoral Act through where um, the Electoral Commission now has to put candidate statements up on their website. So that's yet another source of information for um, voters to go along and look at, you know, candidates talking about themselves. So voters have gone from, you know, a daft of, of information other than party policy to there is now four ways that they can get information about candidates and what they stand for both in terms of policy but also in terms of as people mm-hmm. so you know it's an it's abundance of riches yeah and i think what we've noticed too just in our process here of interviewing different minor parties is that you know the people are in a situation that's unprecedented with COVID. There's a lot of additional stresses and things to consider. So this is a very important vote for a lot of people. You know, people who've been a bit blasé about voting in the past are taking a much more active stance, it seems, at this time. And they also seem to be really genuinely curious in the human aspect of who they're voting for. Like before, people would say, oh... 
that's that party and they always do that or my dad voted for them and I'm going to vote for them too. Where now I'm seeing as there's a lot more questioning, there's a lot more uh, deliberation in this process. Yes, and I think it's, it's interesting on two levels because as lots of people have observed, people's cynicism about the political system is rising. Mm. But at the same time, people are demanding and have some fairly clear ideas about how the political system can be fixed. Mm. And so at the same time, people are therefore getting much more interested in who is the parliamentarian as a person. And we're also wanting people to think about how are they going to do their job? Are they just going to fit into the party machine and do what they're told? Um, Or are they actually going to do something, you know, work with the voter, work with the constituents, work with the community to try and build um, the Canberra we want? So, and working with the community, um, you know, it's, it's asking the community, well, what are the priorities? What are the policy priorities we should be focusing on? What are the policy solutions that we should be coming up with? Using deliberative democracy techniques to build that relationship with the community and get that input from the community. And then during the policy process, um, come up with the policy with the community that the assembly can then vote on. And then afterwards, come back to the community and say, well, how did that work? You know, how can we have done this better if we didn't get it quite right? So it's the type of people who end up being in the assembly and their attitude to doing that that's going to make this work. So if, for instance, um, we have a political party that says, well, we're not actually interested in what you, the voter, care about. These are our policies. You can vote for us or not. Don't care. Well, that's demonstrating that um, they're not particularly interested in working with citizens. But if you have... Um, and this is part of the game that we're playing with the elections. You know, if you have minor parties who want to make a mark, well, they're really interested in getting out there and and finding out what voters want and then working with voters um, to get them involved. So in terms of the other trend is, you know, who is giving us statements? Well, lots of statements coming in from minor parties, you know, because, they, A, they want to be seen and this is part of their being seen, but it means they're also thinking about the questions we're asking them about how they're going to do the representing. Mm. The major parties, well, the Greens have pretty much all put in statements, but, but well, just over half the Greens have put in a statement. About a quarter to a third of ALP have put in a statement. And um, the Liberals have sent us a letter saying, our candidates don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just going to withhold my comment on that one. <laughs> it speaks for but itself. What really, I did see, it? on, which was completely unexpected, I saw some of the Liberal candidates also talking about um, Citizens' Assembly and Citizens... Did you? Yes. Did you um, there was flyers going out um, talking about that they were examining this process. I can't remember which candidate it was. It was well, it's probably because every other party yeah. <laughs> is yeah. but talking it, I mean, about it. But it did shock it. me because I'm not used to seeing their approach. That nah, well, I'd be suspicious myself, yes, anyway. but that's just an opinion, you know. <laughs> yeah. on, on the other hand, if they really are thinking about this... Well, fantastic. ...then that's fantastic because, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm in Currajong, so I'm getting the, the Currajong flyers and I haven't noticed any of the Currajong mm-hmm. Liberal candidates talking about mm-hmm. this. Um, the Greens candidates are talking mm-hmm. about it. I haven't noticed the, a, the ACT mm-hmm. Labor candidates 
Didn't no, I think everybody yeah. who's been on there's on definitely, this series there's definitely has one Labour candidate who's yeah. been quite active in talking about it yeah. um, and well. was hosting events to yep. discuss it. But yep. um, definitely all the minor parties and the Greens have been mm. uh, very participatory in this yeah. in this process. Yeah. But I was um, not living in Canberra at the time, but I understand there was. Um, during one of the more recent elections, there was a huge swathe of independents that got in, um, and then there was some concern about whether or not they had the experience um, to do the job well, because there were so many basically newly minted politicians all getting in all at once, and there'd been some concern around that maybe happening again. You've got that sense of people being dissatisfied with how things are. I've been told that Canberra likes to flip after about seven years. It gets sick of something and it wants to flip into the opposite. So neither one of those solutions is ideal. Um, what are you seeing that's different this time? You know, It sounds like there's just, just more awareness, more people educating themselves and, and wanting to be informed. I think people's dissatisfaction mm. with the way politics is working has hit some sort of critical nexus. Mm. And I think a mixture of the bushfires over summer and then the way governments have responded to COVID have demonstrated to people how governments can get it wrong and how governments can get it right. And although people are often dissatisfied with the way politics is played, they are also very clear that it's good government that delivers good outcomes for the people and the environment. And so they're looking for good government. So if candidates can demonstrate that they're going to support good government and they're just not going to go with business as usual, people will be attracted to that. And how much um, dialogue has there been around accountability? Because this is always the game that gets played at elections. It's all the promises that are made and the very few that are kept and maybe the ones that are kept are the ones you wish they wouldn't keep. <laughs> yes. I mean, accountability and legitimacy are two of the big issues in political science that people have been working on for, you know, 100 years, 150 years now. And I think... What Capad's view on that is, is that this this thing that, well, you voted for us and these was our policy list and therefore we have a mandate, is actually very hollow because when you look at how people vote, they look at a whole raft of policies and within your policy platform there will be things that they strongly agree with and there will be things they disagree with and there will be things they strongly disagree with and there will be things they're sort of okay with. And I think this is the attraction of smart vote. It allows you to tease out that nuance between what the party is, is offering and what the issues are and, and do the match. But the outcome of that, I think, is that when people go to vote, they will vote on a collective position and so for a government then to say, well, we have a mandate to do this because we were voted... In. And even worse, you know, if you get elected with no policies and to say, well, we have a mandate to do whatever we like now, is just wrong because, you know, in well, that's a... borderline dictatorship, right? It's not borderline. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, and so it's it comes back to the fact that governments need to be better working with, governing with the people. Now, that means we have a responsibility as the people to be active citizens. Um but, and, and one of the, you know, the most, in our current system, for all its faults, one of the powers that we have is the power to where do we put our vote? 
And in our Australian preferential system, it's where do we put our series of votes so we get the best bang for our voting buck, so to speak. Mm. So what uh, what are some of the uh, some of the options that parties have to to include the community? What are some of the methods that have worked really well overseas or around Australia? Well, overseas and in Australia, there have been some experiments in participatory budgeting. Mm-hmm. So this is where uh, you get a group of citizens to come together and tell the government how they should spend a proportion of their money. Um, there is citizens' juries, which are ways of getting citizens together to deliberate on a controversial or even a non-controversial topic um, and give a recommendation to the government. They are extensively used. They've been used in the ACT in 2017-2018 to look at the um, third-party comprehensive insurance, to look at you know the Better Suburbs program, to look at better housing and to look at the carers' support process and that all you know and and while there were some issues with how they were run um the fact that they were run and the government sort of experimented with them is really good and i think we can learn from that experience and we can do it better um there are even in some places like east belgian citizens assemblies that are permanently set up to to form um well to feed ideas into the government of the, the, low, the regional government to say, you know, this is what citizens think about these topics. The government can ask them to deliberate on something or they can deliberate on something and send it into the government. There has been a group in West Austria, um, which is one of the states in West Austria, has, has been doing a similar sort of thing with citizens' assemblies um, and, you know, getting citizens to make very informed decisions about how they would like their community run and the things that the government could do. And so you've got this sort of nexus between the government people, the citizens and the policy, well, the, the, the experts, the, the topic experts, who feed information to the citizens who will bring their lived experience and their desires and their hopes and their wishes into the conversation, but nonetheless make very clear, informed probably quite rational and reasonable choices that they then give to the government. So far, no government has actually given up its final decision-making power. Um, even in the processes in Ireland they used to come up with, um, well, the, the abortion law reform and, and gay marriage, um, you know, the, the government did make a, a commitment at the beginning that they would, they would go with what the citizens wanted. They had the deliberative democracy processes and so they went with what the citizens wanted mm, yeah so, so what about um the kitchen table conversation sort of thing to even devolve it even further can you explain that a little bit so one of the mechanisms where you can do this on a neighborhood level is the kitchen table conversation or the picnic table conversation i think we came up with that's right yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> The COVID, COVID-friendly. The COVID-friendly. Yeah, bring your own card table. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so that's a, that's a, a, a sort of a, a facilitated, although not a highly facilitated like a citizen's jury would be, but it's a, it's a, there's a set of rules around the sort of questions you ask and how you run the conversation that allows um, small groups of, you know, six to 10 people is, is ideal to share 
um, experience and ideas about a topic. And the point is you don't have to agree, but what you do have to do is respectfully listen. And you can have this... So one can just be a scoping exercise, you know, what are we worried about? And then you can get a bit more formal. Well, if this is what we're worried about, what are the options for doing something? And then the next step is, well, if these are the options, which one do we think we want to give a go? And then you can go into a planning exercise to run a project. Or you decide that as a group of citizens, you haven't got the capacity to run this project, but maybe you'll see what other citizens in from other picnic tables have come up with. And um, then you've got a, a movement to go along to your local member and say, you know, we reckon you should do this. Yeah. So if, are you familiar with the, the system they basically came up with in northern Syria, in the Kurdish areas? Look, I've heard about, but I'm not really across that. Mm -hmm. So as far as I understand it, and in, in the context of what we've just been talking about, uh, an analogy would be that there is a permanent uh, citizens' assembly on the neighbourhood level, and that is actually sovereign for that neighbourhood, so it can make and enforce rules within its, within its area. And then every time that assembly needs to make a decision, it actually sends that decision out to a whole swag of kitchen table conversations which are based in the sub-communities within that neighbourhood. So it might be a, a religious group would have their own little kitchen table conversation and be figuring stuff out that way, or it could be... Um, uh, there's there's always a women's one, um, but they've organised it so that those all come back. So there's been some deliberation right on the ground in all of the communities involved in the neighbourhood. Then that comes back up to the assembly, and the assembly is what makes the decisions. So it's an interesting combination of the two. But I think that's that's the ideal. I mean, Eleanor Ostrom was talking about a similar idea, what she calls polycentric governance, where um, you make the decision at the level that the decision is going to be applied... Um, which, you know, goes up and down a scale. And then the principle of subsidiarity means that, you know, it's the same thing. You make the decision at the level that the decision is going to be applied, but you, you can then seek resourcing from higher up the scale where, you know, economies of scope and economies of scale come into play. So if we're thinking about, you know, national roads and railways, local communities might have an opinion about roads and railways, but, you know, they're not going to fund the main highway through their community that's somebody else's responsibility the other interesting thing that's happening as part of this dissatisfaction with politics is what some people call the voices for movement so this emerged out of indi and we talked about indi last time where um the people in indi tried to work with their local member the local member didn't deliver they had a process of kitchen table conversations to come up with um, better ways of working with the local member who said, nah, not interested. So they said, okay, we'll get our own local member. And that's now, you know, we've seen that sort of happen in Wentworth when Malcolm Fraser called, well, triggered a by-election there. Turnbull, I think. Yeah. Turnbull, yeah. sorry. Yeah, wrong <laughs> Prime Minister. I was wrong Malcolm. my head around <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, Seen the same thing in Warringah with Abbott and Zali Stegall. And apparently there are... The word has it through the grapevine. Several other um, electorates around the country who are also not happy with how their local members representing them and are also thinking. So, one of the other projects CAPAT is involved with, with a guy called Rob Salter from Melbourne, is this idea of electorate level mobilisation, where you actually get 
you know, again, using the kitchen table conversation model of getting um, people in electorates together to start to talk about, you know, how they can better work with their local member and how their local member can come up better with a governing with the people model for that electorate. Now, unfortunately, to date, most of the experience has been people get organised when they want to get rid of somebody because it's an issue. What we would be encouraging people to do is think beyond that limit and start to think about, you know, if you've got a local member who's working well with you, maybe it's going to be even easier to set up this governing with model with them and then they might be happy to seek your input on into a whole lot of conversations, decisions that they're having at the policy level, basically like it now works in Indi. So the model from Indi has now, the local member works with their community. Um, they have regular what they call community summits, I think, and they feed back to the community what's going on up in um, Canberra at the federal level, and then they seek input from that, which they then take back to the deliberations up here in Canberra, which they then feed back and say, you have this iterative process. And, you know, the reality is that members of parliament have a dual role. Partially they're there to do what we say as delegates, but they're also there to work with us to think, well, you know, I have access to information which for a variety of reasons I can't share with you because unfortunately secrecy stuff happens. Um, and therefore getting together with all the other people from all the other electorates in Australia, we think the best outcome for Australians overall is going to be this one. But at least going back to the electorate and explaining why you made that decision, not the one you were sent up with the authority to, to make. So that's, that's, gov that's one aspect of governing with. Well, that's what real accountability looks like, right? Yes, that's right. And therefore, the, the decisions that are made are legitimate. Hmm. Mm. So I guess it's, it's pretty, pretty much a stereotype of the, the Australian voter is, you know, oh, well, whatever, it's just a bloody politician. They make me vote. I'll go and stick my vote in the box. and Have a sausage. Yeah, that's right. Get a free sausage. I don't think we get sausages this year because of COVID. It's all oh, staggered voting. That's right. No sausages. Yeah, staggered voting means no sausage sizzle. That's yeah. right. You might as well go and use the machine early. That's right. Yeah, hip. Um, but do you reckon this disinterest is just a myth? Yes. Yeah? Why? Because when you actually survey people, they're not disinterested in the outcomes and they're not disinterested in politics and they have an interest in what happens and they have some fairly good ideas about how the system can be improved. What they don't like is how the current system is being run and it looks like the parliamentarians who are there are not there for our benefit but are there for the vested interests who are donating to the parties that's what people don't like. And so there is a degree of cynicism. And one could be conspiratorial here and think that, you know, maybe it's in the party's interest to have voters cynical and disinterested because that actually reduces the threshold or raises the threshold for accountability. So, again, as active citizens, part of our, our role as active citizens is to think, well, you know, I, I, I must not be cynical. <laughs> I must actually engage with what's going on. And even if I only have time in my life to every four years for one day to think about this and to look at who the candidates are and be thoughtful about 
who I vote in to represent me, you know, that's a huge positive investment in getting the future you want. Of course, if you want to do more, then there's a lot more that you can do. Mm. And is it, is it also looking at um, just the hi- history of behaviour of, of a party and, and candidates, whether or not they've followed through and keeping their promises, whether or not they've um, taken action to try and implement the changes that, that the citizens have demonstrated that they want? That, that's right. And, and the fact that, you know, we discovered about three decades, two decades ago, that there are core promises and non-core promises. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, that started a sort of a slide that, that has continued. And, you know, I think some people have cynically manipulated people's dissatisfaction. Mm. But but it is important to remember that there's, there's two aspects of this on, on two levels. One aspect is that, you know, cynicism, if you opt out because you're cynical, it means you actually accepting the status quo and therefore if you want to change the status quo you've you've got to have skin in the game the second thing is to differentiate between the politicians and the government and one of the things that has gone wrong i think recently is that people have started to conflate government and politicians and you know in in terms of the you know buzzword neoliberal agenda which is all about, you know, government is bad, it should get out of the way, and the only role of government is to protect our property rights. People actually understand that government is there for much more than that. You know, it's government who actually gives us roads and hospitals and schools and um, nice beaches and protects the environment so that when we go camping, you know, it's not all logged. Makes a whole lot of laws that uh, make the existence of those corporations possible. Yes, yes, <laughs> that too. And and that's part of the tension there. Um, it also means we have safe shower screens. So if you fall over in the shower, you don't slit yourself into half. You know, this, you bounce off the shower screen. It means that, you know, your roof doesn't fall in your houses theoretically. Mm-hmm. You know, are built to a certain standard. If you go and buy a coffee, you know that somebody's washed their hands, hopefully in the making of the coffee, and that there will be repercussions if a food poisoning outbreak happens because, you know, the, the hamburgers that you bought with the coffee were... You know, there's a whole lot of things government do. So people understand that's what government for. So in a way, it's important to say the way parliamentarians have been behaving over the last few decades has led to a cynicism about parliamentarians. Um, And therefore, it's the parliamentarians aspect that we need to fix, which comes back to our point. If you vote for the right people and you get the right parliamentarians in there, you're going to get better government. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you, you touched on the on the relations. You know, you mentioned relationships right at the beginning. But the, what's the relationship between the uh, the economy, particularly the bigger players in the economy, and the parties in our party system? Well, um, I like Richard Dennis's definition of an economy, which is that it's a way of working out how to most efficiently allocate resources for a given outcome. And it's totally divorced from the ethics, morals and politics of what you actually want to achieve. Or whose outcome. (laughs) And so it's the question of whose outcome, who gets to decide what's on the agenda to decide what the outcomes might be and then who chooses the outcome you want is the critical factor. So the economy is actually irrelevant. What we should be, we should be focusing off the economy. And then we can start to look at those questions like whose outcome are we 
you know, playing the game for here. Richard Dennis also talks about econobabble. So that's the way that, you know, people who are in power confuse us by using this jargon that we think is important, but actually really is code for something else. And so I think one of the things that has voters, you know, cynical about how the system is working is the recognition that large players can buy influence, undue influence in the government system and get the outcomes they want. And it's often done behind closed doors with wheeling and dealing. And we, the people, are missing out. Therefore, this is not democracy. So government's role is to make sure that there is goods and services being delivered. People can get fed and housed and watered and schooled and hospitaled and healthcare and all those other things. And the economy really should be about how to do that. But cost effectiveness is only one of the criteria. The other one is it reasonable and is it delivering services people actually want at the level per people need because you know maybe you need some inefficiencies in there and what ecology teaches us is you actually need some redundancy in there so that when something breaks there's another bit of the system that can come in and rescue it so we have been schooled to think that the economy is important because it's jobs and growth um And while jobs are incredibly important, they need to be doing something useful. They need to be providing meaning for the person's life. They need to be providing sufficient income. And when for some reason aspects of society have fallen over so people can't get a job, there should be a safety net and not, you know, a bare bones safety net that keeps you in poverty because you've got this theory that if you're starving, you're going to go out and look for work more readily. It's about what the evidence shows where people have tried things like a universal basic income is people actually work more um, or more people work people work more for the times they want to work but people actually want to do things like spend time with their kids take them to the park go bushwalking um, and they do that too but productivity doesn't go down productivity goes up and more people get employed yeah, counterintuitive, but pretty well, good. Well, it's not counterintuitive. No? It might be counterintuitive if you're a neoliberal bean counter, <laughs> but it's not counterintuitive if you actually think about what people want to do with their lives. So yeah. we're getting back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Well, yeah. At the peak of that pyramid, it's a sense of contribution and purpose. Yeah, and Maslow's hierarchy is actually being superseded by a whole lot more work, which actually shows it's a network. And so it's a network of needs. And so a need, whole archy of needs. It's a whole archy of needs, mm-hmm. yes. And, and so most of the needs need to be met. Some needs are critical to meet other needs, but you can actually have missing needs and still get to self-actualisation. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what for you are the important needs. So it's also personalised to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I think there was an exercise they did with a bunch of students and trying to get them to identify what they thought were essential needs as opposed to wants. Mm. And there was someone said sunlight. And they said, well, what about if you live out, you know, in the North Pole and there's no sunlight for six months of the year? You obviously don't need it. There's other ways to address that. Well, it depends on your time scale, yeah. doesn't it? I know it does. It does. <laughs> but this is what they got into. They got into, like, again, identifying that there were different 
prime yeah. needs mm. or priority mm. needs for different individuals and groups. Mm. That, you know, it, it wasn't just black and white. Well, we involved white skin because we used to live in places where there was less sunlight yeah. and therefore we needed to be able to make vitamin D. And yeah. you do that better if you've got light skin. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating stuff. We could really get into anthropology here, couldn't we? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we've only got a couple of minutes left. So. Isn't that always yeah. the way? It's, just, we just get, it's hard when we have two guests because we just get warmed up and we've got to say bye, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, Peter, what we should do is, again, just give you a couple minutes there to, to quickly... Um, get our listeners on board because I know a lot of people have with staggered voting haven't actually gone out and voted yep. yet. I personally haven't because I wanted to have a chance to interview all of our candidates yep. first and hear what they had to say. That's my position. Um, yes, yeah, so I think now I feel a lot more informed. So um, what would you like to recommend to our listeners to do at this stage of the voting game? So look, essentially this stage, it's 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 vote thoughtfully. Go along, find out as much as you can about the candidates from all the sources that are available. I know it's all a bit of a mix and we are going to be talking with Smart Vote and Vote Easy so that next election we maybe have one platform and it's easier for voters to go along to. But this time around, there's the Canberra Alliance platform where you can go to and you can look up and see how the candidates think they're going to be able to do their job, what their skills and qualifications are, what they're going to do to promote good governance, what they're going to do with work actively and govern with us, the people. There's the Vote Easy website, which basically is um, a platform that candidates can tell you whatever they like about themselves. There's Smart Vote, which is a way of going along and starting to look at, you know, which candidates do my own personal values better align with. And then there's the elect. Uh, elections ACT website which is a, another platform where um, candidates can put up a photo and a blurb about themselves and some contact details. Oh, that's So fantastic. it's all available to voters. Yeah. Now that's brilliant Peter. Well, and once of course again, there's, it's, a, yeah. there's a radio series yes. out which <laughs> has been is. talking to many of the minor parties so yeah. if you look on SoundCloud and search for Align in the Sound that's uh, aligning as in getting together in the yeah. sound yeah. Uh, yeah, you'll find all the uh, archive of, of our, our uh, minor party series there. And we've also put a link, uh, I've put up a link to that directly on our Facebook page as well. Perfect. So if you go to our most recent post on who our guests are, you'll see a link to that series as well. So thank you very much, Peter, for coming in. That's Dr. Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy. We hope you're all feeling thoroughly informed right now and ready to hit the polls. So next week, we have another double special for you. First up, we'll be chatting with the folks from the Inner North Urban Farm to tell us what young emerging farmers are doing in backyards in Canberra's Inner North. Then at 9.30, we'll be Welcoming back Helen Oakley, who's Executive Director of ACT Conservation Council, who'll be doing uh, an environmental review of the various party policies and where they stand sustainably. So don't forget to tune in. If you'd like to hear more behind the lines, you can support us by going to 2XX.org.au and you can subscribe, volunteer or even submit your music to us. And if you haven't already, remember to get out and vote. You've been listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson on Behind the Lines, Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. In Canberra. See you all later. Thank you.